Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former number one ranked jockey, Billy knows what it takes to succeed. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees understand the keys to financial freedom. Saddle up and get ready for a ride you won't soon forget on how you can harness your wealth. Hey, sports fans. Here we are again. This is Billy Peterson with Harnessing Your Wealth. This podcast has definitely evolved over time. And one thing that we wanted to do from the get-go was to have a lot of high-profile people on this show who can talk about their careers and their backgrounds and what made them who they are. And I've been honored to have some great guests on the show to not only enlighten you, the listeners, into what's possible out there in the world for becoming successful, but just how they went about doing it. And we also sprinkle in, and I think it's important to talk about the financial end of things. Of course, that's what we do here at Peterson Wealth Services. We help people manage that hard-earned wealth and do well with it. So one of the great things I get to do being the host of this show is to interview people that have seen some great and, and interesting things in their life. They've done special things in their career. And I am quite honored today to have Dr. Wayne McElraith join us on the show, who is a renowned equine orthopedic surgeon. He's been doing this probably since the dawn of time. I mean, he goes back a long ways and he's written many books. He's kind of the, he's kind of what you'd call the gospel on a lot of this information. And he has pioneered a lot of what goes on in today's world with regards to surgical intervention and, and just diagnosing problems in equine athletes. He's worked on Oh, countless thousands and thousands of horses, I'm sure. And he can elaborate a little bit more on that as he goes into his conversation with us. He was born way back in the 1940s. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna elaborate too much on that, Wayne, but uh you have a distinguished background career. You came from originally from New Zealand, and so uh I could just go on and on about the awards he's he's received and the accolades that he's earned in his life, but I'm going to let him do some of that. So I won't steal the thunder here. Thanks for joining me today, Wayne. You're welcome, Billy. Nice to be here. Appreciate it. How about we jump right in and you can tell us a little bit about your background and your upbringing and, and then why you chose a career in equine industry in the first place. Yeah, well, I was, uh, as you said, I was born and raised in New Zealand in a small town called Omaru, uh, down in the South Island of New Zealand, and um, went to high school, went through my schooling there, and um, probably the biggest factor in how I sort of got into this side of the career is that I I was very interested in horses and I was very interested in medicine. As background, my father. I uh, was a mechanic who then evolved into working with farm machinery and selling farm machinery. And so I used to often go out with him as a youngster, but probably more influential was the fact that I spent quite a lot of my holidays on my uncle and aunt's high country sheep station, which is like a high country ranch in New Zealand, sheep and beef cattle. And and I, I loved working with, uh, and my, my aunt taught me how to ride. 
and I loved going out mustering sheep on the horses. And I I also ran into a veterinarian for the first time um, when the vet came up and treated calves, treated sheep, and vaccinated sheep. And I thought, this is a pretty good lifestyle. So then it came around to making the decision where I'd go to university. I was I was torn between medicine, veterinary medicine or human medicine. And anyway, I decided on uh, veterinary medicine and went to vet school. There's only one veterinary school in New Zealand, Massey University. And I went to vet school. And, uh, and while I was in vet school, I, I maintained my interest in, in food animal. Like I think if I was going to say why I went to vet school, it certainly I, I didn't have any vision at that time to be involved in equine orthopedics, but I'll tell you how that happened. So I went to veterinary school and uh, enjoyed every aspect of it. I think I always um, thought initially that I'd be involved in that same rural practice that I was attracted to by my time with the High Country Sheep Station. So during vet school, I, uh, you know, I looked after my studies, but I developed another passion and that was mountain climbing. And I became a very serious uh, alpine climber, mountaineer. And in New Zealand, there was a plethora of that kind of climbing available. So by the time I graduated from vet school, I was also committed to uh, lead a New Zealand climbing expedition in the Peruvian Andes and so I chose a practice in the country, uh, 25 miles west of Christchurch, which is the biggest city in the South Island of New Zealand, certainly not the biggest city compared to Auckland, but um, a reasonable size city. But I was in a town of 300 people that was very much a, a, a farm-based uh, practice, but did a lot of sheepdog surgery as well. So I got interested in surgery at an early age. So I really went and was in practice there for about two years and three months. It was close to the to the mountains. And uh, then in March of uh, 73, I uh, left as a 25-year-old. Um, you're actually being nice. I was born in the later part of, uh, of the 40s, but uh, December 1947. So uh, <laughs> I may as well have my age transparent there. Um, so as a 25-year-old, I, I went overseas after a couple of years in practice. We climbed in Peru. We were involved in, in two attempted first ascents. One of them was successful. And, uh, and then I traveled around South America for a while and then went on to England where I was, you know, we could uh, work there as locums. My whole rationale for being in England for six months was to earn enough money to climb in the European Alps. So the pivotal time when I sort of started down the pathway of equine orthopedic surgery was uh, I was invited to a Christmas party in, in London, and I met a guy there who was a, three years ahead of me in vet school, and he asked me what I wanted to do. And what I characterized it then was I wanted to uh, get get training, advanced training in equine surgery. Now, this is 1973, and the situation with 
horse surgery at that time was they were just starting to do abdominal surgery and save horses with twisted valves, you know, with colic. And I thought that was going to be, you know, that was incredible. And so he told me that uh, because I, I should go back and say that at that time when I was in vet school in New Zealand, there was no such thing as surgical residencies. In other words, special training programs in it. But he listened to me and he said, you know, I'm I'm uh, going back. I've acquired a girlfriend at the University of Guelph. He'd been there doing a master's degree. And he said, I'm going back there for Christmas and I'll, uh, I think I know what you need. And so he called me up on New Year's Day in 74 and said, meet me in New Zealand house because I've got an application for you to, for this large animal surgery internship and they'll wait on your application, um, which closed today, but they'll wait for it. So I sent my application off and I ended up getting one of the two internships in large animal surgery at the University of Guelph, which is about 60 miles west of uh, Toronto. And actually, actually, it's the oldest veterinary school in North America. And I got, then I was hooked. So I, I love doing surgery. I love working with horses. I found that I could get along with horses well and uh, loved the lameness. I loved every bit of it. And of course, so really the first part of focus with my surgical career was doing abdominal surgery, a lot of colics. And I applied for one residency, which is a three-year, well, two-year program then with two years partial after that. But uh, for a surgical residency at UC Davis, because it was pretty famous at that time, particularly with uh, Dr. J.D. Wheat, who was uh, a rec well-recognized leading surgeon in the United equine surgeon in the United States. Well, I didn't get hired by Dr. Wheat. <laughs> we later became friends, but um, three days after I was advised that I didn't get the residency, I got a call or my mentor, Dr. Don Horney at Guelph, got a call from Dr. Jack Fessler, um, who was at Purdue University. He was looking for a resident. They didn't have matching in those days, and so they could be very flexible who they hired. And Dr. Horney told me I should go and work with Dr. Fessler, and uh, he told Dr. Fessler that he should hire me, and so I ended up going to Purdue. Now, that, that is its own little story because I'd never been to North America. Uh, well, never been to the U.S. at this stage. I was in Canada, obviously. I had only met, most of the Americans I'd met were either mountain climbers or uh, some Americans down in South America for certain recreational pursuits. And um, I thought Purdue sounded kind of French um sophisticated um but the hospital director came and he said McElraith he said I hear you're going to Purdue and I said yeah isn't that great he said oh you're too wild for them well anyway they were quite different from me and the average uh Purdue person was uh very very nice and uh quite conservative so but they accepted me and I that was the pivotal step in my becoming or getting involved in equine orthopedic surgery. 
mm-hmm. because my advisor was a guy called Jack Fessler. Um, and the, he set, he gave me a, he gave me a master's program. You had to do a master's degree while you were doing the residency. And he gave me a project in synovitis, which is inflammation of the joint. And at that time, there was no literature in equine osteoarthritis. And I started working with this. And another man that was on the committee, Dr. Dave Van Sickle, he was a world expert in canine arthritis. And he suggested that my when I finished my residency, that I extend my master's project into uh, a PhD. And that's how I ended up getting into arthritis research, which has been part of my career. The other major part of my career has been arthroscopic surgery. And because I was working with a model of inflammation in the joint, I thought, hmm, how can you look at this regularly? And I'd read about the arthroscope and I found out that there was a course in human arthroscopy. It was one of the first courses in human diagnostic arthroscopy. At that stage, they would just look in your joint, um, do a diagnostic arthroscopy of the joint to make sure that you did indeed have a meniscal tear. So this is 1975, and there was no MRI. And if you had pain in your knee, that wouldn't go away with medication, then they'd commonly do an arthrotomy. In other words, an incision in your knee and take out your meniscus. And sometimes that that meniscus was normal. So anyway, diagnostic arthroscopy was a huge advance for for human orthopedics, and it ended up being huge for human orthopedics because you could poke the scope in the joint, insert the scope in the joint, and uh, look around and get a good view and then ascertain what was wrong with the joint. So I called Dr. Johnson up and I said, you know, I'm a veterinary orthopedic resident, a veterinary surgery resident, but I'd love to come to your course. He said, I'd love to have you. Dr. Johnson was a big pioneer in human arthroscopy, wrote the biggest textbook there has ever been on human arthroscopy, and he was at Michigan State. So he said, I'd love to have you. I won't charge you registration. And uh, I drove up in my Ford Pinto and uh, did the course with 100 uh, physicians, human orthopedic uh, surgeons or residents. And so then I came back to Purdue and I said, hey, you need to buy me an arthroscope. And they did. They were always very, very supportive. And I started doing a diagnostic arthroscopy on standard bred knees because they were a common patient. We were only 80 miles from Chicago and saw a lot of standard breds. So that's how I got into the whole career pathway. And, um, and then the last part of that chapter as far as where I ended up was uh, as I was finishing my PhD and I just got board certified as a surgeon, as a veterinary surgeon, um, I got recruited by Colorado State. And I'd already spied out Colorado State as the perfect place for me. Um, as a climber, uh, there was a little shortage of climbing going on in Indiana. And so Colorado was the perfect place. So that sort of set me on the pathway of where I went up till now for the next 40 years. Mm. And also 
meant that I stayed in the U.S. because this was the the place of opportunity. I, I recognized quickly that there was a lot of opportunity here with my learning arthroscopy or developing techniques in arthroscopy as well as research and joint disease, how important it is for the sport horse. Now, you've done great work, and I know a lot of people have heard your name or if not known who you are just in in passing conversational and what's going on obviously in the world horses unfortunately have injuries just like many athletes this court of course in sports baseball players basketball players football players of course um do damage to knees shoulders you know we have tears here problems there and and now with equine athletes uh you are forefront in helping them recover from these certain injuries. So um, I want to get, and obviously interest of time with this show, I want to kind of go into maybe some of these conversations that you can, you can provide us just a bit of a background on how you see the industry shaping up today. So tell us about people that might be interested in, in a career in the equine industry itself. Is there a future there in in orthopedic surgery or where where would you say for students who may be at university and i want you to elaborate a little bit more on that from career standpoint for the younger generation as well as where you think the opportunities are and if these costs of just going to university are necessary and proving to be proving to get your money's worth is what i'm trying to say well it's a it's a very relevant question at the moment, uh, Billy, because um, first of all, I'd summarize my career from 79 on as, you know, being both a uh, a professor at the university and teaching. I For the first 15 years, I taught vet students, but I also developed an outside practice because I was the only one initially doing arthroscopic surgery in the horse. And most of my external practice has been weekends in California. So I think the first attribute that you need is you've got, you've got to be impassioned. If you're going to go into any form of equine practice or equine surgery, and I'll talk about specialty as well, um, You've got to, it's a lifestyle choice. In other words, uh, more and more we see people prioritizing a 40 hour week or how much they work, um, what they do on weekends, leisure time. And these, I'm not criticizing any of those uh, priorities, but uh, it is a different world. Mm. And the short version of my career, I was asked to go down to California and do arthroscopic surgery in 1983 in May by Dr. Nancy Goodman, um, who was the first really female to make it as a veterinarian on the racetrack in California. Uh, I ended up in transparency marrying Dr. Goodman. But um, anyway, we had a, a, a commuting relationship we fortunately had the same passions and and goals, and you know it's worked out. But it is a it is an unusual lifestyle for a lot of people in that there's no forty hour a week. Mm. Now, as far as going back to but 
We also have our own crisis within the equine veterinary profession, and I'm a past president of the American Association of Equine Practitioners, and that's our biggest problem is sustainability about the next generation of equine vets. Because here's the challenge. You can go to vet school, and as you know and you've acknowledged, uh, tuition fees are high. And in Colorado, they're as high as anywhere because um, and so you're coming out the other end with most people having considerable debt. You can go into small animal practice and find a uh, and get a 40 hour a week job and actually make a living whereby you're going to be able to pay off your loans and it's simpler with an equine career, there's still an opportunity. Like I wouldn't change anything in my career of what I've done and where I've ended up, but it is a different world. Um, I think, you know, we talk about the equine industry, particularly the racing industry is shrinking. Um, And we can come back to that if you'd like. But uh, the other part of it is though, despite it being smaller, it's still very hard to get good people going into that because of the hours and the demands and the less remuneration. So they're all challenges. But I still say to people that would be veterinarians uh, or veterinary students or people who come for advice, it's a fantastic profession, but you've got to be into, um, you've got to be into a non 40 hour week. And, be willing to put in a lot more time than the average uh, average person. I'm sure the demands are absolutely insane. And yeah. you you operated on what literally thousands of tens of thousands, maybe or more. Of well, horses. I calculated. I've probably done you know over fifteen thousand arthroscopic surgeries. You know, horses. Wow. Wow. With arthroscopic surgeries. Do you recall any famous horses you worked on? Oh, yes. Yeah, I can recall a number. Um, Probably the one that's the initial one that was most notable was a horse called Spenderbuck because I was it was the early days of arthroscopic surgery. So I'd been doing, you know, arthroscopic surgery as we started off doing diagnostic arthroscopy and then our human counterparts were the same. We developed ways of so-called triangulation where you made another hole and brought the instrument in. So the instrument, your visual field and the instrument and the lesion all met in the same place. Um, Initially, we were looking through the scope. Then soon we developed video cameras. So we're doing it off a TV screen. And uh, so in 84, this was before we had cameras. Um, I was asked to go down and operate this. Spenderbuck was a two-year-old that had won. He'd been third in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. He was not a, he was a good horse. And um, I operated him in Miami. Uh, We didn't have any cameras, so I was just looking through the scope and putting the instrument in the other side. And we took a chip out of his knee. And five and a half months later, he won the Kentucky Derby by six lengths. Wow ran wire to wire. So he was sort of still the most notable one. Another one for quarter horse racing people um, was a horse called First Down Dash, who became the leading stallion ever in quarter horse racing. 
And at the end of his two-year-old year, he again was a good two-year-old, uh, I operated five joints on him at the same time, which was one of the other great benefits of arthroscopic surgery. In other words, doing the so-called keyhole surgery, we did both knee joints, both carpal joints in each knee. So that's four joints. And then he had a fetlock chip and one of his fetlocks, as well as a splint bone fracture. And the next year he came back and won the champion of champions and was world champion. So they're, they're two examples of, you know, not, not, ne not necess necessarily what I did, but what arthroscopic surgery did with the techniques we developed. Well, for people to entrust those kind of horses to you says a lot. For those of you who don't know, first down dash and the quarter horse racing industry is like the Michael Jordan is to basketball. I mean, just a dominant, dominant individual and has passed that on in his in his bloodlines and uh, through his many foals. He's produced hundreds of millions of dollars in, in total progeny earnings and that's pretty fascinating that you actually operated on him and then continued on a stellar career. So kudos to that. If you could say anything that's going on in this in this world uh, with regards to the equine industry, equine industry, farming industries, uh, agriculture, there's been a lot of talk and some of the issues going on globally. Uh, it, it can even morph into political issues. But what What's out there that gives people hope that those kind of industries are going to stay alive, if you can comment? Well, I think, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a huge area. But, you know, I think passion for that lifestyle and for that. Well, first of all, the frank matters are, unless we're all going to become vegetarians, <laughs> um, we need ranching, we need farming, you know, we need all those realities. But it's been interesting as um, as things go along, you get people brought up in the cities who don't understand that lifestyle. And like I was brought up in a small town that pretty much served a large agricultural area. So it's it's fine. But I can go back to New Zealand now that was heavily agriculture like when I was a vet student, 80% of the GDP was agriculture. Now, tourism has come in, but also Auckland is a huge city and contains half the population of New Zealand, which means you have individuals brought up being unaware of agriculture at all and, and animals. So that's the challenge. What gives me hope? Oh, we've got to have food. So I think, you know, the food animal business is not going to go away. Um, with horses, we've got to be very careful because uh, probably the welfare uh, fronts and I, you know, obviously I've, I love horses. I've been brought up with working on, I've been lucky to be at work on some of the great athletes, but they're all horses and they're all equally important to me. So, you know, if I'm doing surgery on a claimer, it's just as important as a grade one winner, but mm -hmm. um but the important thing is that uh, we're threatened by urban sprawl. Um, and I think when we say we, we could talk about all large animal operations, whether it's cattle, 
sheep or or horse racing. But horse racing is particularly vexed because uh, the welfare thing has become a political issue. We've got groups like PETA who don't have a clue about what we do and how well we treat those horses. Um, we have mistakes that have been made on the other, on the other hand by uh, by certain animal groups and racing groups. But and last but not least is disparity and dissension amongst ourselves. Uh, as far as if you just take equine race, you could take horse racing. Um, you have so many organizations and we've finally got Heiser, which is the idea 21 years ago when I was president of AAP, we, we uh, not, it wasn't because of me, it was someone else's idea, but I presided over the start of the Racing Medication Testing Consortium or AAP did it. They had a summit. We formed this consortium and the idea was to get uniformity throughout the country as far as medication, um, security, how racing was judged, and 21 years later, we haven't achieved it. So the Heiser program, um, it's big do- number, num- you know, both of its uh, reasons are for uniformity so that everybody has the same standard. You don't have any illegal medication being allowed somewhere and not elsewhere. Uh, the standards for welfare are the same. Uh, very high, and also um, the priority being the welfare of the horse. And so, right. and welfare is critical. And if we don't, if we don't, if we don't look after that, we are going to disappear, particularly when it comes to racing. But it's right. also the same in the food animal industry. You know, you can't do things that were done in the past, and. Um, and there's no point in denying it or saying you're going to deny it. It's here. So public opinion is obviously important. Um, it's important to your continuation. Um, and then there's other political things that are difficult to deal with, but they need to be dealt with. Right. And so that's something you mentioned earlier kind of made me think about how people get into this industry. And it starts with passion. And someone maybe introduces them but if they don't have a passion for being around animals then they're not going to go very far they're really not going to like it so what i see by and large when you visit a racing operation a barn a ranch you have people that love what they do and they love their animals and i've told countless people that if i had a choice of what i wanted to be when i come back in another form after this life it would be a racehorse <laughs> I think that's taken the the best care of uh, of any thing I've ever witnessed as far as being uh, fed well, bath, just a life of luxury. So most people think uh, that who are involved in the industry. And unfortunately, like you mentioned, there are a few instances when the limelight is shown so brightly on an unfortunate accident or injury that the the word goes out that these horses are being abused and run to the to the ground and killed and and I think that's sad because it's the it's the exception not the rule 
Well, absolutely. And, and you know, unfortunately, you we have certain individuals that can be named. They won't be named here, but uh, they're on a mission to to call, take all those stories and and hype them up and give the impression that we've got bad trainers, bad people out there. Uh, and, you know, it is a, it is basically persecution without any basis whatsoever. Uh, Let's hope it doesn't come to that, Wayne. I, I love this industry and I know you do as well. You've retired. So you used to be every weekend doing surgeries. Now you've retired, kind of living that life, enjoying what you've <laughs> done all these years, successful in every aspect. Uh, just to wrap up this show today for our listeners, tell us what you what you attribute the keys to success and happiness in life. Yeah, well, I think it's true. I, I actually, I just retired from doing surgery in California every other weekend at the beginning of this year. And um, and I miss it. So I'd say back to your question. Um, life is to be lived. You only get one. Um, and I've been lucky because I've always, you know, the right opportunities have come along. But you take note. You take you take your opportunities. Sometimes you'll get things come in the way, but you don't let it. You just go. You. You work around it. Um, I've been lucky, but also um, I think, you know, luck comes to people who work hard. Uh, so that's an important attribute. Or put it this way, practice would be the other word that I haven't used today, but not not from a veterinary practice point of view, but from a practice as far as doing it over and over again. There's a number of sports people being quoted, professional sports athletes and people and golfers you know, I am lucky, but I notice that the more I practice, the better my luck becomes. And I think all of those are attributes that are really critical to it. But if you can, you know, I, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but finding what you love and doing that, uh, obviously, you've got to be able to make a living at it. But uh, I've been able to, and uh, it's still fun. And I'm still doing a little bit of surgery in Kentucky um, and I, I consult, you know, on a, on a, on an international thoroughbred operation for an international thoroughbred, which takes me overseas as well. But, um, so it's still, I just love being around horses. And so as I, you know, I, I think you already always need to recognize when it's time to retire from a surgical, uh, career, but I've still got a career looking at horses as well. So. And that's great. You haven't completely walked away from it. You know, they always say in this business, if you've got a baby coming up, <laughs> you don't die. You always have that, that new cult to look forward to and what they're going to turn turn out to be. That's right. <laughs> so it's it's a great business. And we're sure appreciative of you spending some time with us today and giving our listeners a bit of a background into your life and what it took for you to become so respected and renowned in this industry and taking care of so many equine athletes and so many superstars to continue their careers. So thanks again, listeners out there. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and we will bring another great guest to you here in a couple more weeks. Until then, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. 
Before we declare the race official, please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about today's show, please check out the show notes. Visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801-475-4002. Once again, thank you for listening. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Peterson Wealth Services. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.